Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Pastor Matt. I'm associate pastor here, and I work with discipleship, uh, especially with our youth. And so I'm, I'm glad to be able to speak with you today in finishing up our series, Crucified and Risen Savior, looking at the Gospel of John. And today we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we actually have some blue Bibles on the back tables there uh, at the ends of your rows. If you need one, you can find it there. Uh, we'll be in John, chapter 21. If you remember uh, from last time, as we were finishing up John chapter 20, it seems like there's really a natural place to end the book right there in verses uh, 30 through 31. The Holy Spirit writes through John, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I mean, that's a pretty good, like, ending, okay? I read a lot of books. There's a lot of bad endings. That's a good ending. It'd be a good place to stop. And yet, John is not finished with his account. The Holy Spirit is not finished, and he has more to tell us. And so chapter 21 almost feels like a bit of an epilogue to the whole story. But there are some important additions here, some things that could not be left unsaid. We have the third post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples, And we're going to see that this is a very personal appearance. And then, of course, there's a very important conversation that needs to be had between Jesus and Peter. And so I'm going to read uh, from John 21, the first 14 verses, if you'll uh, listen with me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself In this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now, none of his disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So as we just read, uh, John has three post-resurrection appearances that he records. There are others. First Corinthians talks about uh, many accounts. We have in, in Luke and in Mark and, and Matthew as well some other accounts. He, he appeared many times over a period of 40 days. John includes these three. The first of which was in John 20 where he kind of appears in the room with his disciples and that is where Thomas is not there, right? And he's not able to see the risen Lord and then eight days pass and then finally Jesus appears again and Thomas is there that time and he touches the Lord's wounds and says, my Lord, my God. This is the third such meeting. And as I said before, it's perhaps his most personal and I'll explain why here in a minute. But we we start off the story with Jesus' disciples going fishing. And you have to remember that that is how Jesus found them in the first place. By trade, uh, that's how Peter and Andrew and James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee, and maybe some others as well, that was their trade. They were fishermen. And they didn't go out with poles. They went out with nets on boats. And they would cast their nets and just drag and, and pull in what was ever there just over and over again. It's very uh, labor-intensive work. Jesus has called them from that. He, he actually went up to them and said, follow me. And, and they did. They dropped their nets. This is earlier on when he first encountered them. They dropped their nets and they followed him. And now Jesus has died. He's, he's gone to the cross. He's resurrected. He's appeared to them. They know that Jesus is going to commission them, but not quite yet. So what do they do? They return to fishing. And, and what are we to make of this? I mean, is this Peter trying to return to his former life? Before Christ, is this something Peter's doing that's like sinful? Probably not. When Jesus appears to them, he doesn't rebuke him and say, what are you doing? What are you doing going fishing? He doesn't do that. In fact, he blesses them. It seems best to understand that Peter and the disciples, as they're waiting for what Jesus is going to do next, we know in Matthew 28, he's going to call them up onto a mountain. He's going to commission them to go uh, into Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to begin their ministry. Uh, they're just kind of waiting. And in the meantime, hey, they got to provide for their family. They got to provide for themselves. They got to do what they know they can do. But they catch nothing. You ever done that? You ever gone fishing? And, you know, and no, I think that like a lot of us, we do that and that's, that's fun. Ah, just, just fishing is fun. You know, it's not called catching. It's called fishing, they say. But when this is your job, right? And this is how you feed your family and all that. It's, it's, it's surely frustrating. But I want you to notice what happens here. This third revelation of Jesus is really important for the disciples to witness. In the previous two encounters, they encountered the risen Lord, but he was just like there in human form talking with them. Right? That Just the fact that he was there in the flesh was in and of itself miraculous, was in and of itself amazing. But apart from the miracle of that resurrection, they get to really see... Jesus' power displayed. Remember how they knew him before? They'd seen him walk on water. They'd seen him feed 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish. They'd seen him heal the lame, the leper, the blind to say, take up your mat and walk. And then he did. They'd seen him do amazing things. And you wonder if they were wondering after his resurrection, has the grave robbed Jesus of any of his power? Is he back but somehow lessened? In his ability. 
No. Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, still commands the seas and everything in it by repeating the miracle that he did at the beginning. If you remember, that's something that Jesus actually did in the gospel of Luke chapter 5. That he, he pretty much did the same thing. The disciples had been out fishing all night. Nothing happened. He said, put your nets down one more time. Okay. And they, the same thing happens. They pull up a load of fish and it's too many. They can't even haul it in. Right? And that's when Peter says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, I will make you a fisher of men. Jesus is repeating that miracle. He says, I am the same Lord that you saw do this before. The grave has not robbed me of any of my power. I am the same today, yesterday, and forever. It's important for the disciples to see that. But Jesus, I like also notice how Jesus waits until dawn to appear. Apparently, like I said, they were fishing all night. I mean, he could have appeared at midnight, right? He could have appeared at 3 or 4 a.m., you know, and like, so they wouldn't have to fish all night and not get anything. It says he appears at the day. And you can imagine, this was, I said, labor-intensive work. It would be very disappointing to fish for hours and hours and hours all night long and catch nothing. Frustrating, tiring, disappointing. And Jesus arrives at just the right time. He arrives at the right time when their need is met and when they would probably appreciate it the most. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been in prayer about something and you're like, all right, Lord, I could use your help right now. Hey, I need to pay this bill right now. I need healing or my friend needs healing. I need you to intervene right now. And it seems like God like delays a little bit. And you're like, God, why? Why? Jesus always shows up at the right time. Not our time necessarily, but oftentimes when he does, when even when he delays, it's we find that's actually where we're even more prepared to receive his gift and to appreciate it. Notice also that Jesus doesn't do like an empty display of power. He doesn't do magic tricks. He doesn't like show up on the shore and just like shoot fireworks from his fingertips, right? Or, or do, he doesn't do like a Marvel movie trick, right? He doesn't do empty displays of power. But... Jesus rarely, if ever, like, I mean, he walked on the seas, but even then he had a purpose. Jesus never just displays his power for show. It's always purposeful, always intentional, and almost always for the good of people. He he always is using his power to heal people, to provide for them, to do amazing things. And in here, he, he did a miraculous sign, but he was filling a need the disciples had. They needed fish. They needed to feed themselves and their family. They needed sustenance. And he used his divine power to bless them. You know, sometimes I think we were kind of looking like, God, I believe you're powerful. I believe you're God. Where's the power? that you? Where's that power in my life? You know, I... I We want to see it. We want to experience it. And I think if you want to see the power of God in your life, oftentimes I think we'd prefer to see something like miraculous and out of the ordinary. You can probably most witness God's power in your life in the constant mercies he sheds upon you. If you're looking for the power of God's work in your life, look to where he's graciously providing for your needs, where he is supplying your daily bread. Are you fed? Are you clothed? Do you have income? Do you have a home? And you say, well, that's a given. No, it's not. No, it's not. 
It, maybe it feels for you like life sometimes just feels like you're on the verge of falling apart. Your relationships, your job, stress level, whatever is happening, it feels like, man, it feels like at any moment things could just fall apart and break. But you know what? It doesn't. Because God sustains you. God holds your life together. And sometimes he doesn't meet a need right at the timing that we would like, but he is still faithful. He meets it at just his perfect timing. So the disciples recognize Jesus. They say, oh, it's, it's him. It's the Lord. And Peter does what he's going to do, right? He's just like, yep. And he just like dives right in. We're told a lot of details in this story that stand out. I think it's interesting. As I, you know, sometimes stories just, they kind of tell the bare bones of what's happening. There's a lot of details. Jesus appears at daybreak. They're told to throw the net over the right side of the boat. We actually have the exact number of fish. 100 and, was it 153? We don't even have the exact number of the, it's like, it's about 5,000 people Jesus fed. There's a couple numbers that are rounded in the gospels. But we know the exact number of fish that were in this net. We know that the net was not torn or broken. We have Simon jumping into the sea, but we have this extra detail that like, oh, he's stripped down because he's fishing. And he happens to grab his outer garment before he jumps in. Like, why is that detail necessary? The fact that the boat was about a 100 yards from the shore. This story is just filled with, it seems like, extra detail that's not quite necessary to tell the story. And why is that? As many of you can attest, whenever something amazing or traumatic happens in your life, it seems like, you ever get this sensation where like things slow down and you remember like very specific things about it? Like, man, I remember the smell or, or this very specific detail that like, because everything in life slows down and your memory is very vivid. I remember uh, the night that uh, I got engaged to my wife, Lachelle. We went down, we were in Missouri, we went, we went down to old St. Charles, we went down by the Mississippi River, and, uh, you know, we, we danced at this pavilion, you know, and uh, I had a, a ring box, right, and it had a little light in it, because I knew it was going to be nighttime, and I remember I got down on one knee, and I said, Michelle, will you marry me? I opened it up, and she goes, hey, there's a light in there! And I was like, yes or No. I remember that, I remember, but I also remember that, you know, we were excited, but I had all of our family gathered together at her Aunt Lisa's house, and I was like, this is great, but she's not going to know about it, so we're driving on Highway 370, and I said, okay, I want, this is weird, I want you to put your coat over your head, okay, so you, like, don't know where we're going, okay? Um, so we're driving down Highway 370, and it's not like a blacktop road, like a highway, it's a, it kind of, it connects a major highway, but it's, it's out in the country kinda at the time. And it's kinda like a tan color pavement, I don't know what that's called. But I'm driving, and I'm excited, and I'm, you know, talking to my wife, soon to be wife, with her coat over her head. And, and I see something in the road up ahead. I'm in the fast lane, there's three lanes, I'm in the, in the, and, and I see something in the road, I'm like, what is that? You know, it like takes a second to register, it's dark out, and I'm like, that's a really big cardboard box. Not like this big, like this big. And I'm like, oh no. Well, I'm going to go ahead and avoid this. So I go to get over, and there's a big 18-wheeler in my blind spot plowing right past me. So I go to get over, I almost hit it, and I have to come back. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to hit the brakes and hope that there's nothing in the box. There was something in the box. It was a stove. And by the way, and the, by, so we don't ever know where it came from, but it wasn't, it must have fallen off the back of a truck 
But it wasn't laying on its side. It was standing like tall, upright ways. And I just hit it and deployed it. But the shell is, has a coat on the whole time. <laughs> has no idea what's going on. Right? So we hit it, right? And our car, like, goes into the other lane. Right? Airbags deploy all that. Praise God that there was not a lot of cars out. Because we're on the highway. We went into the other lane. Our car is facing this way now. Right? We're able to get out and go on to the median. Right? Like this, you know, the, the big block. And we're standing on there. And I'm like, all right, call on the fire department. And I'm like, got an accident. Highway 370. And then, like, I watch as a car T-bones my car. And that guy broke his ankle. And he hopped out screaming. And I'm like, and somebody else just hit my car. And, like, the fire department was like, I was told, like, yeah, I got engaged tonight. They're like... Oh, that's great. Do you need a stove? <laughs> it was a meaning, it was a, it could have been a very short-lived in- engagement, right? By God's grace. Uh, we, we survived that and other accidents thereafter. But so many things about that night are so vivid to me because it was great. It, ha- it had its tragedy. It had its, it had its good points. I got engaged. Things just stand out when you have um, something like that, right? And I think there's so many details in this story, you know, that are just, it seemed like they're extra because it was so memorable for the disciples. It stood out to them. This actually speaks to the truthfulness of this account. They're not just like, ah, we'll make this up, we'll give some vague story. No, like 153 fish. Peter definitely grabbed his coat before he got in. There was a charcoal fire with a few fish and bread on it, like just details. These men witnessed this event. It's seared into their memory and they never forgot it. This, this third revelation of Jesus demonstrates both his divinity and his humanity. You see both in this. You see his divinity as he comes and he's able to call out from the shore, right? Set your net down on the right side of the boat. And then he commands the fish to fill it. We see his divine power. But then they also come to the shore and he's cooking breakfast. Where did he get his fish from? I don't know. But he, he probably made a fire and cooked fish and bread over it and sat and had breakfast with them and ate, right? You see his divinity, his divine power, and his very personal humanity. It must have been surreal, right, for the disciples. I, I, I kind of wish I could have been at that, back, that breakfast. But the story's not done there. We move on to verses 15 through 24, where Jesus is going to have a very personal conversation with Peter. And before we read this section, I need to give a little bit of backstory. If you don't know much about Peter, Peter is a passionate follower of Jesus, and I mean that in all the best and worst ways. He's headstrong. He's zealous. He often thinks or often acts without thinking and speaks without thinking. And there's a couple examples that's kind of peppered in the Gospels, right? When Jesus uh, is transfigured before him, he takes him up a mountain, and uh, Peter and James and John he are able to witness this, and Jesus is revealed in his glory, and Moses and Elijah appear there with them. Peter's like, we should build houses up here. I mean, like, he's like, and, and, like, and it even says in the text, like, Peter doesn't really know what he's talking about, <laughs> like... When Jesus is arrested, Peter's like, I, I, we gotta do something, and he grabs, like, this is the, like a Roman legion of guards, and he's like, I got a sword, I'm gonna attack them. Like, Come on, Peter. Like, he cuts off a man's ear. When news of Jesus' body is missing from the tomb on Sunday, he just gets up and like runs to the tomb. 
When Jesus appears on shore in this story we just read, what did he do? Like everyone, he just dives in the water and makes the rest of them bring probably his boat back on shore. Sometimes Peter acts just impulsively, right? Without really considering himself or considering others. But actually, and sometimes we can laugh because they're funny, but the most regrettable occurrence of this happened at what we call the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus gathered the twelve together. He administers the Last Supper, institutes that, and he just begins sharing them, you know, hey, I'm about ready to be taken and to be crucified. And where I'm going, you cannot go, referring to the cross. And now, and he says, at that point, he says that all his disciples will abandon him. Now, Peter, he's like offended by this, right? He says, in John 13, he says, no, I will lay my life down for you. In Mark 13, in Mark 14, the same conversation, he pauls, uh, uh, Peter says something even more. He says, even though they all fall away, referring to all the other disciples sitting next to him, even though they all fall away, I Will not. Bold move, Cotton. I mean, that, you can appreciate his enthusiasm, but he's wrong. He doesn't understand himself. And Jesus knew who he was and what was in his heart. And Jesus said that Peter would deny him three times before the the rooster crowed that morning. And sadly, Peter did exactly as Jesus predicted. When he was trying to observe the trial of Jesus from afar, people kept asking him, I, I think I've seen you. Weren't you one of his disciples? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, weren't you one of his followers? No, no. Three times he denies even knowing Jesus. And then the rooster crows right on cue. And then it all comes back and it's in Mark's gospel says when he comes to realization, he remembers what Jesus said at that moment. It says he broke down and wept. And that's the last that we hear of, of Peter. The last, and I think one gospel even says that Jesus looked at him and saw him, right? Like, that's the last interaction before Jesus is crucified that Peter has. He doesn't see him again until the resurrection. So we come back to our text in John 21, and the author, John, has made it clear this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to these disciples, and yet there's been no mention of this. There's been no mention of Peter's denial of Christ before his death. And maybe, you can imagine maybe Peter's state of mind, right? He's had a couple interactions with Jesus, and he's probably waiting, like, for the foot to fall. You ever done this? You ever, like, messed up royally? Maybe you, like, before you went to work, like, you had a a major argument with your spouse, or before bed, or something like that, and then, like, you go away, and you, like, you spend the rest of the day coming back, and you come back maybe from work, or you wake up the next morning, and you're like, so uh, what's what's going to happen here? Are we are we okay? Is this water under the bridge? Are we going to have to have a hard conversation? Like you kind of you, you start wondering like where are things at? And you wonder if that's where Peter was at. Was this was this a situation where it was water under the bridge between him and Jesus, or if Jesus was going to look down and and really have a hard conversation with him? Surely Peter is full of doubts and he wonders how things stand between him, him and his Lord. And you wonder if that kind of like puts a, a damper on his excitement about the resurrected Christ. But I want you to see not just what Jesus says, but how he does it. Read with me verses 15 through 18. 
When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus asks a simple question, Simon, son of John or Jonah, do you love me more than these? It's interesting, he calls him by his full name, right? I do that you know, with my kids sometimes, right? You call by the full name. But he doesn't call him Cephas or Peter, the name that Jesus had given him for ministry. He calls him by his given name, his father's name. And he asks him, you know, do you love me more than these? What, is, what are the these there? Let's, let's answer this question real quick. Because he only does it this first time. Do you love me more than these? What are the these that he's talking about? Well, it could be a, a, actually a couple things. Maybe the these things he's talking about refers to the fishing boat, the fish, the, the life that Peter lived before he came to Christ, before he became a, fo- a follower of Christ. Maybe he's asking like, Peter, do you want to go back to that? Do you want to go back to that old life? In this view, Peter I mean, would be maybe being upbraided by Jesus for returning to fishing. But like I said, I don't think there's any suggestion that's really what's happening here, that he's uh, rebuking him for doing that. Another view has it that maybe he's saying, Peter, do you love me more, more than you love these disciples? Do you love me more than you, your love for these brothers of yours? Right? And no doubt, Jesus requires us to have a higher love for him than for any other. You should love Jesus more than you love your husband or wife, more than you love your children, more than you love your friends, more than you love your father or mother. Matthew 10.37 makes that clear. But I don't think that's what seems to be in view here. When Jesus says, do you love me more than these? He's saying, Jesus saying, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because remember, Peter had swore to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. In some sense, he's recalling that foolish time when Peter declared his love and dedication to Jesus was stronger than that of the other disciples. There's something, I think, of a soft rebuke here. He's acknowledging that. Peter's response, though, is, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Now, he doesn't say... Of course I love you more than they do. I think he's learned his lesson. Right? I think he's been sufficiently humbled to know that he is no longer, he should no longer compare his love for Jesus with other people. And by the way, neither should we. Right? Because Jesus doesn't really care if Peter loves him more than John or Andrew or James loves him. Jesus' question is, do you love me, Peter? Not do you love me more than they love me. Do you, Peter, love me? Notice that Jesus' question isn't, Peter, do you fear me? Peter, do you honor me? 
Do you admire me? Do you submit to me? All of those are necessary. Every disciple of Jesus must do those things. But that is not the primary thing. The first and most important question is a matter of love. Do you love the Lord Jesus with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul and all your strength? All else flows from this. He's asking Peter about his heart. Do you love me, Peter? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus' response is maybe unexpected. If you've never heard this story or this story before, Jesus doesn't say, okay, good. He doesn't say, thank you. Or I love you too. He says, feed my lambs. And you're like, what is that talking about? He doesn't say, I accept you back. He doesn't even say, I accept that you're forgiven. He goes even stronger. He says, okay, therefore I'm entrusting into your hands the care of my people. The lambs are those who will believe in Christ, who will believe in him. In his, they're, they're his people. And Peter, as one of the apostles, is going to be responsible to preach the word of Christ, to care for Jesus' people as one of the apostles in his absence. And Jesus saying, okay, you love me, Peter. I trust you with my people now. Peter is not only forgiven, he's trusted. Guys, this is grace upon grace. Can you imagine, let me just give you like an analogy. Could you imagine some of you have teenagers that are getting ready to drive or you've, you've been through this, you know, someday you will. Can you imagine your son or daughter passes their, their, their driver's test? They're excited. All right, here's the keys. Go, go, go enjoy. Go, go drive, right? They're so excited, right? They're, and they're in their enthusiasm. They do something really stupid. They're texting while they're driving or something and they smash the car. Right? And by the way, some of you may have experienced that, right? Can you imagine that, right? A teenager, like their first time, they get their license and they make a, a stupid mistake and they wreck the car. Can you imagine them coming back and being like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And like the natural thing a parent would do would say, yeah, you're sorry. Guess who's not going to drive for a long time? But imagine if a parent said, yeah, you messed up. Did you learn your lesson? I forgive you. Here's the keys of the other car. That's what Jesus is kind of doing. Jesus doesn't just say, you're forgiven, but you're on probation now, mister. He says, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? You're not only forgiven, I trust you with my people now. Guys, that is grace upon grace. That's what Jesus' forgiveness looks like. It's forgiveness and restoration. That's what grace looks like. It's not just you're let back in the house with conditions. It's you have full rights and privileges as a son or daughter. But I also, this is just kind of a side point, but I think it's really sweet. And I credit Matthew Henry for for pointing this out. Notice Jesus' love for his people. The shepherds whom Jesus approves to watch over his people, to care for them, must be people who love him. He will have it no other way. For those of us who, who are to tend after the people of God, preaching the word, caring for God's congregation, my fellow elders, uh, Tim, Craig, Chris, I know you're at home, George. And our, our, our highest responsibility is to love Jesus. It is our most important calling. If, and if we live in love, live near and love the Lord, only then are we fit 
to do what Jesus calls us to do, to feed his sheep. And congregation, I'd ask that you'd pray for us, right? That you'd pray that you'd help us, that our love for Christ would not grow cold, so that we can tend after you well. Jesus repeats the question three times, though, and it's significant, right? Jesus asked the same question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Two more times, both times Peter's, uh, both other times Peter answers the same. There's some slight variation in Jesus' response. He says, you know, feed my sheep or feed my lambs. And he says, tend my sheep. Then he says, feed my sheep. It's all pretty much the same thing with slight variation. The third time, though, Peter probably realizes what Jesus is doing here. And he says, ah, oh, this is, you've asked me this three times and he's, he's grieved and he's like, this is because I denied you three times, isn't it? And Peter in his grief says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. You got to give Peter credit. He doesn't say, of course I love you. Didn't you see me jump out of the boat? He says, Lord, he just, he's like, he's just trusting that Jesus being God knows everything. He's like, you know that it's, it's weak, God, but you know that I love you. Peter had already mourned over his sins. He's already wept. He was already remorseful. Jesus didn't have to pile on and convince him, you know, and lay it on thick. Jesus didn't have, you know, he didn't even speak directly of it, but only indirectly. Jesus' confrontation was not, all right, do you apologize or what? Are you sorry, Peter? He doesn't do that. He says, Peter, do you love me? And in doing this, yeah, because Peter denied him, there was this question of, of Peter's love. But he's not like, in asking this question, he's giving Peter the opportunity to reverse the three denials by giving three affirmations of his love. He's giving Peter an opportunity. Peter, yes, you denied me. Will you affirm before me to my face? Will you, do you love me? And so we see that's what he does. Peter's not only forgiven, but he's restored and trusted with the gospel and the care of Jesus' church. Jesus didn't lead, and this is interesting, Jesus didn't lead with condemnation for his wayward disciple, but with kindness, right? This is, remember, Jesus appeared three times. This is the third. Think about all that happened before Jesus even brought this up. Right? He met, he appeared to Peter twice and he blessed them in his prayer. The first two times he's in a room, he didn't show up and be like, okay, good to see all of you, except Peter. He doesn't do that, right? He welcomes them all. And even here, he blesses Peter. He fills up their nets with fish. He eats breakfast with, he cooks them breakfast and he eats the meal with them. He does all of this before he ever says a word to Peter. He welcomes him in. Guys, it is the kindness of God that leads us to restoration and repentance, not his severity. He's welcoming him as back his wayward disciple as a beloved friend whom he's laid down his life for. Jesus takes the initiative to draw Peter back into repentance, forgiveness, and fellowship. And I think some of you need to see that picture of Jesus this morning. I need you to see his kindness. If you're a believer in Christ... Some of you surely are are walking in some serious sin right now. And maybe what Peter went through here kind of resonates with you because maybe recently you sinned big. Or maybe there's a sin that you've kind of gone over a couple of times in your life and you stumbled and you fell into it again recently. And you're kind of in that place of like, 
Are we okay? Is this water under the bridge? Are you holding it against me? And and you've done this before where you, you've messed up and you just kind of like, I need to put some distance. That's one of the things that sin does, right? It separates us from God. That shame, that guilt keeps us at arm's length from God. We feel a sense of dirtiness. We feel a sense of shame. And we don't feel the freedom just to go up before our Father. We see that from a, we see that in our kids from a little age, from a young age. And even as adults, we do that with our Heavenly Father. We do what's wrong, and instead of dealing with it, shame puts a distance. And maybe you're fearful. Like, is this, is this the last time? Is, is, is Jesus gonna be like, nope, not this time. And maybe you think, you know what, I'm just gonna like work my way back. I'm gonna, you know, and we do that sometimes. Like you messed up, you've sinned against your spouse, your kids, your family, your parents, and you're like, I'm gonna be really nice for a while. You know you do it, right? I'm gonna be really kind, really nice, I'm gonna kinda go below the radar, and eventually I'll kinda earn my way back into, into good graces, and then, and then maybe things will be okay. Christian, are you walking in like unrepentant sin right now? Like, are you dealing with shame and guilt and sin of something you've done and, and you're ashamed of coming to Christ? Are you like Peter where you're wondering, is this, you know, where do I stand with you? Let me ask you guys, is Christ your Savior? Will he reject you when he has died for you? Guys, do you, when Jesus went to the cross, do you think he didn't know about this sin? And the ones you're going to commit tomorrow and next week and years from now? He knew full well who you are and what you've done. And he took it to the cross. Let me remind you that when he has died to atone for this sin too. Do you remember what Jesus promised in John 6? He says, all the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you remember that promise? Do you think Jesus will go, will turn away from that? So I call you, like if you, if you need an opportunity, like you need that, that nudge, I call you. If there's a sin that's going on in your life that you have left unrepented, come to Jesus now. Repent of it. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why would you not repent? Why would you keep away, right? Why would you fear that Christ would reject you, right? That God would not be willing to receive you. Let me just suggest to you something, right? That if you cannot come to the throne of grace with confidence, maybe your confidence is in the wrong thing. Let me just clarify something real quick. The gospel is not that God accepts sinners. That is not the message of the cross. Hear me out. The gospel is that God accepts the blood of Christ to cover sinners. It's not that you or I are acceptable, that we've done like just enough to... No, the blood of Christ is what God accepts. He, he sent his son, the perfect spotless lamb of God, to die for sins in our place. He looks upon the blood. The blood is for God. He looks upon it and says, that is sufficient. It is sufficient for your forgiveness. It is sufficient to cleanse you, to wash you white as snow. It is sufficient to bring you into full relationship with God. God accepts the blood. 
So that is the grounds of your confidence. It doesn't matter if you've had a good day or a bad day, right? Like, oh, I remember to do my quiet time this morning. I didn't lose my temper today. I didn't yell at the kids today. It doesn't matter if you had a bad day either. Oh, man, I, I cussed a good bit today. Yeah, I drank a little more than I should have. Yeah, I watched that thing and I shouldn't have. Yeah, I lusted after that person, right? It doesn't matter if you've had a good day or a bad day. You always and every time enter into God's presence, enter into fellowship only by the blood of Christ. It's not dependent on whether you are good or you are bad. It's always pleading the blood. That's the grounds of your confidence. That's why you can confidently or boldly go to the throne of grace. Because of the blood of Christ. And that's why... Jesus could accept Peter because he'd already paid for that sin a few days earlier. So that's what you need to do. Come boldly, confidently. Just say, Lord, I am wretched. I am a sinner. I screwed up. I failed. And and I have nothing to give. There's no reason why you should accept me but the blood of your son. Lord, I know that you accept it. I plead that. You better believe he will accept it. Forgive me. Wash me. Cleanse me. And he will do it. 1 John 1, 7 through 9. Guys, this is such a precious passage. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we walk in the truth. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guys, that's the gospel. In a little bit, when we close in just just a minute, we're going to have some people come up who are going to be here for prayer ministry. And I just want to prepare you for that. Like, if you just need to lay that down and, and, and have someone pray with you, go with you before the throne of grace, I would urge you to be prepared for that, to receive that. But we have one more thing we need to deal with before we get there. As we close our time in this passage with the rest of Jesus' words to Peter, he has called Peter to love him, to feed his sheep, and to follow him now. Let me read 18 through 22. It says, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus called Peter to follow him. And in those early days, that meant literally drop what you're doing and walk around with me. Watch what I do. Observe my miracles. Listen to my teaching. Obey the things I call you to do. Now, when Jesus says, follow me, and he's soon to ascend to heaven, that's it. Jesus is calling him to continue in his word and in his will. To live the life that Jesus prescribed. To fulfill the ministry that he has called them to. To proclaim the message that he has entrusted him with. But here Jesus speaks and he says, you follow me. He says it twice, follow me. He's going to talk to Peter about the degree to which he's going to have to follow him. Follow him all the way to his own death. Jesus tells Peter how he is to die. 
And now Peter's always been headstrong. Peter does what Peter wants to do, right? He's done that all his life. But in his death, Jesus says, you're not going to have a choice. People are going to lead you where you do not want to go, and they're going to stretch you out. He's hinting at, the language suggests, and tradition kind of confirms that Jesus, that uh, Peter would die by crucifixion as well. In fact, uh, what we know is that though John's gospel was probably written at the time when Peter's death had already occurred, and even though it's not mentioned specifically in Scripture, we do know that it was under Emperor Nero probably in the year around 68 A.D. Um, some tradition, which may or may not be legend, says that Peter was not uh, didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord, so he was crucified upside down. In any case, it had been... Fear that caused Peter to flee and deny Jesus had his own death. But it would be the faithfulness of Christ that would ensure Peter would not flee again. That he would walk, that he would follow faithfully to the end. In some sense, this seems like, oh, I mean, who would want to hear about how they're going to die and when? And, and you're not going to be, it's not going to be your choice, Peter. But there's a grace in here too. Jesus is telling Peter, you're going to follow me faithfully to the end. Like, there's actually like a promise in this revelation he's sharing with him. And now Peter asks, you know, is John 2 going to die in this way? I mean, Peter, maybe he's not fully done comparing himself to other people yet, right? And Jesus won't let it happen, right? Apparently they're having a walk. Apparently Jesus and Peter are walking while they're having this conversation, right? And now he sees who is John uh, following. And, and, and Jesus, he's not going to let him compare. He says, what does it matter what happens to John? You follow me, Peter. Christian, there is only one way into this world, but there are many ways out. And the fact of your death is certain, even though you don't know how it's going to come. The time and manner of your death, you do not know, but God does. He has planned your entrance into this world, and he's planned your exit as well. You do not know the day or hour or manner of your death. You do not know whether he's going to grant you a long life or a short life. You do not know if he's going to give you a death in peace or in pain. You don't know if it's going to be gentle or violent. But you should not worry, though. Right? Your great concern should not be how long your life is or what kind of death you'll have, the timing or manner of your death, but that you should glorify God in your life and in your death. I like that John adds that little thing. He's, he wants to give us some focus. He says, Jesus told Peter this so that he would know the manner in which he would glorify God. In his death. That he would follow him and follow him to the end. And Christian, that should really be what our focus is. And it's, it's, you know, some of us, like, we're young enough where we don't want to think about that. It seems very far off, but we don't know that, right? Scripture spends a lot of ink preparing us for death to keep that in mind. Let the world see that death for the Christian does not carry the terror that it does for others. The death has been defanged, it's been disarmed, it's been defeated, it's lost its sting, it's lost its victory because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're in Christ, your manner of death is a matter of grace no matter how you die. Consider that. No matter how you die in Christ, it's always a gracious and merciful death, right? Will you die young or in relative youth? It's only God's mercy that God wants to bring you to glory, to bring you into his glorious presence sooner than you would like. Is that so bad? Will you suffer pain in death? Maybe. Maybe it'll be a long, painful death for you. Should you fear it? 
Well, maybe it's God's will to make the moment of death and the entrance into glory that much sweeter, that you will be immediately freed from pain and you will have a different kind of entrance into heaven than those who went peacefully in their sleep. And you will come with a different kind of rejoicing when you are finally free and all your ailments, right, all, all, all your sicknesses are all done away with and you have that moment of just being free and full and healthy and whole. In God's presence. Will you die in obscurity? Maybe you will live your whole life and, you're, and, you will, and you will do nothing great in the world. You will not make a name for yourself in the world. What of it if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Will you die in poverty? What of that? Your treasures are in heaven. And you know what? When you die, it won't be as painful when God removes all your worldly possessions from you. Those who are rich in this world die something maybe of a much more painful death and all that they've worked for, all that they have is removed from them at death. We're all taken to the same amount of wealth when we end. Will you die a martyr? Rejoice that God, and that can be a scary thing, but man, and, and maybe that ha- that is in your future down the line. Rejoice that God has set so high an honor upon you that he reserves only for his choicest saints maybe. That you have an opportunity to, to do more for the kingdom of God in your death than you could have in your life. What does it matter? How you die, when you die. It's all God's grace. Follow Christ. Love the Lord Jesus. And you follow him. And when you sin, which you inevitably will, we all do, don't wait. Go boldly, go confidently to the throne of grace, confident that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse you, to forgive you, to draw you near. Follow the Lord, faithful to the end. I'm going to call up the the worship team now as they're going to prepare. I've also asked a few people, some elders and deacons and their wives, to come and kind of spread out among the front right here. Uh, And they're, they're going to be here in case you need prayer, that you need help, that you need to go before the throne of grace, but you need someone to go with you, right? That you need someone to to take boldness and confidence with you. And maybe that means you have to repent. You know, they have no power to forgive, but they can, they can go with you to the one who can. That's why I encourage you during this last song, uh, to worship and to go forward in faith. Pray with me. Lord God, you are a gracious and merciful God. You are filled with kindness. You are slow to anger. Lord, you draw us near. You bind us near to you with cords of love. And God, though we fail you 10,000 times, you forgive us 10,000 more. We thank you, Lord, that it is not our goodness. It is not our work. It is not our acceptability that makes us acceptable to you. It is the precious blood of Christ which cannot be broken Lord which cannot be argued against which Satan has no argument no weapon against he is powerless before the blood of Christ Lord would you give us confidence in it confidence in the work of our Savior that we would come before you now and receive grace and forgiveness forgiveness and healing and wholeness minister to us now in Jesus name Amen